Hello friends, welcome to the show. My name is Tom Brobeck and I'm on a mission to help high school coaches keep their athletes happy and healthy. I love playing sports growing up. From backyard football to traveling basketball to high school track and field, there was nothing better than being on a team and playing to win a game. Unfortunately, I struggled with health issues and I know your athletes do too. This inspired me to become a physical therapist and sports performance coach. This podcast will help coaches like you learn how to keep your athletes off the bench and in the game. Have you ever wondered what challenges the best physical therapists face in their careers? My guests today, Tim Reynolds and Brian Gusky, thought this time and time again. They decided to explore it and turned it into a new book, Movers and Mentors. Today we talk about their process of writing a book together and the challenges they face as PTs. I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure you order Movers and Mentors today. No, Brian, we were talking about with just with PT and the rate of burnout. And um, I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't know if it's the way healthcare has gone. I don't know if it's the comparison game we see in social media. I don't know why, but it feels, I feel personally like there's no way I can do this full time for much longer, much less my whole career. Have you had experiences like that? Yeah, I definitely say you're not alone in that in that sentiment. Um, I think it's right now, just the last couple of years with, with COVID and with a lot of people leaving the profession that just puts more of a burden on the people that remain. Um, and mm. that's where it gets, gets really challenging. Plus, you know, with the little things like continuing education with, you know, staff meetings or staff gatherings or outings, like those little things that used to keep you engaged or keep things exciting aren't happening. Um, so I think that's potentially, um, you know, creating a little bit of extra burden or, or burnout feeling. So I think it's just, it's really complex and, you know, multifactorial, but you, um, you mentioned yeah. that, that generational thing, Tom, I think that's an interesting concept. I mean, I look at my father, right. And so he was a journeyman for IBM, right. So like 30 plus years at IBM, 30 plus years in the mm-hmm. Navy, you found a job, you stuck with it. You didn't try to jump ship at some point versus like the millennial age where two to three years in a profession and then that's an opportunity for a stepping stone to go somewhere else and so that might be part of the part of the concept too is just that from a societal standpoint we're not expected to move to one location start that job and then stay there until we die so yeah um, that's different. Everyone's a free agent now, you know, you can pick up and leave and go you know, play, play for anyone. It's I like, it's the, I crazy. like the comparison. I'm going <laughs> to see myself as that. If I don't like my situation, I might go sign with someone down the street. I need a, I need a right-hand pitcher to uh, come in for the postseason. So. <laughs> <laughs> One of the issues that I don't know if you can address before you apply to school is PT. There's it's a very high uh, floor and then there's a limited ceiling, both in terms of like salary benefits, but also in terms of like the corporate ladder. There's just not really that in therapy. It's typically either you're uh, an employee or you're the manager. And like that's really it for a lot of positions, unless you want to get more on the, ma- on the manager side of things. Does that contribute to maybe the lack of fulfillment that some of us might feel as well? I mean, that's part of the reason why I decided to um, 
pursue academia as an opportunity, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. one of those things where a staff clinician, I have the, I'm fortunate that I work at a place that has a residency program. So I'm able to do some mentorship with our residents. And then I teach in some of the residency courses, but in terms of like day-to-day -day satisfaction, that, that only fills your cup up one weekend every, <laughs> every six months, right? I mean, it's one of those sure. things that, um, you put a lot of responsibility on yourself to try to continue to grow and develop. Um, but outside of that, you punch a clock, you treat your 40 patients, they get better. Some don't. And then you're not going to take the, the middleman management job because he gets flack from, from the clinicians and he gets flack from upper management. So it's like, I don't want that position. And right. so it's like, well, what are you going to do? Um, you could try to publish some occasional research articles, but for what? There's no corporate ladder that you're trying to climb. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's one of those things that there are clinicians that I think find just um, and are completely satisfied with the concept of clinical care. And that fill, fill, fulfills them with, um, with just being able to give back and help people um, get back to their activities. Um, for me, I needed a little bit more. I needed to have some new responsibilities and be able to um, watch myself grow and develop a little bit more. 100%. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Brian. Um, no, I was just going to say, I think the, the bigger organizations and, and companies get, the harder it is to kind of ensure that your staff is, is satisfied, content, and are being fulfilled. I think when it's a, a small, you know, a small clinic or small organization, what have you, um, it's a lot easier to keep a pulse on that. But as you get bigger, I mean, if we're going as big as, you know, hospital, um, uh, organizations, you know, there's just it's really difficult to make sure that everyone is kind of growing um and they're they're fulfilled and happy with what they're doing so um a lot of that gets put on the individual to kind of seek out other um other ways to stay engaged and to to kind of stay motivated um but from an organizational growth perspective you know it, we see that businesses and um, other kind of corporations outside of the healthcare industry invest a lot of time, energy, and money into making sure that their staff is growing and, and kind of um, uh, on a certain track. But I don't know if we see that as much in healthcare. I think it's more like, yeah, you know, come in, treat your patients. That should be enough to fill your cup and, you know, go home and, and do your documentation at home because you're on salary and it's the expectation <laughs> that you get that done you know and uh i don't know i think it's tough and that puts uh providers in a really tough position it's really challenging as a provider because naturally um a lot of us have this uh characteristic of doing more than what's required of us that's how we got uh we did we did well in school it's how we got into grad school it's how we got our jobs like we're willing to do the extra and not always ask more from it so we'll do our notes at home. We'll call our patients over lunch. We'll show up early. We'll give, 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 give. Cause that's our, that's what we are. Right? We're givers. We're helpers. We're providers. But at some point that can really pull you apart, whether in your professional life or personal life. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and I, and, and it's hard, it's hard. It's like, what do you do? What can we do? Cause for me, I really try hard if I have a problem, I try to bring a solution to it. Like, okay, here's the issue at hand. Can I provide something that would help with it and not just sit here and complain about it? But this is a tough one because I don't know. Like you you get paid what you get paid based on what you get reimbursed from from your visits, from the insurance. And I don't know how much flexibility. And there's, there's such a demand, especially in uh, outpatient orthopedics. 
in Minnesota. And a lot of people want those jobs, especially in the Twin Cities. Like if you don't, if you're not super happy, there's someone who will who will uh, replace you and fill your role and take over your schedule. So it's hard because I don't know what are some easy solutions to these problems that we're talking about. Well, I think one of the things that you're doing, I mean, from an eternal satisfaction standpoint, is looking for other opportunities to either challenge yourself, uh, improve the profession or help other people within the profession, right? So what do you do? You create a social media presence, you start a podcast, right? So you have the opportunity to Mm -hmm. potentially give a voice to individuals who might not necessarily have a voice or at least share opinions and thoughts that you might necessarily have that other people are having too, and create a platform for collaboration communication. And so I think it turns into um, one of the blessings and curses of physical therapy is that you go to school for six to seven years, you graduate with a doctor, and that's a stepping stone to other opportunities as well. Stepping stone to academia, stepping stone to um, broadcasting yourself in the social media as an influencer, opportunity to um, be an individual within the community to provide courses or education for others, right? So you, you can utilize your your title, your knowledge and skill set within multiple different facets. And you have to sort of rely on those, I think, in order to continue to search for um, fulfillment because that that concept, like Brian was talking about, yeah, I mean, I like to look at some of my friends that graduate from PT school and they're treating 25 patients a day. And, oh my gosh. And that's, and that's, um, that's like three to four patients an hour. Um, no time really built in for documentation, take your documentation home. Um, thank, I'm thankfully in a practice where I treat one-on-one for 30 minutes and then that patient's gone. I got an hour for evals. And so for me, this is the only model that I feel is sustainable for a quality of life standpoint and the, the practicing of the care that I want to provide. Um, and if I was in a model that was, uh, the fast track to burnout, if you would, um, then I would, I would definitely need to supplement some sort of, Mm -hmm. um, care for myself and trying to figure out what, what else do I want to get out of this profession? I think the, the onus is really put on at, at this point, you know, given everything that we've talked about and us looking for solutions, like you said, Tom, I think the onus is put on the provider, on the clinician to really figure out what, you know, makes them tick, what makes them come alive um, and what they're, you know, what kind of setting they'd be happiest in. And um, I think the problem is that we have kind of a mismatch. You know, Tim was alluding to, you know, that fast track to burnout model where you're seeing 20 to 25 patients and, and really kind of at your, your wits end with, with treating. There's certain people that thrive in that, right? There's certain people that enjoy that atmosphere, that enjoy that, kind of energy and mm-hmm. being on the floor and seeing a lot of patients. That's great. And, you know, nothing, nothing against that type of model. Um, there's people that, that enjoy that. However, there's a mismatch between the number of people that are put in that position and the number of, you know, people that actually enjoy it. Right. Um, and majority of outpatient clinics, uh, I should say a decreasing majority because more going towards that one-on-one or cash-based model um, but, uh, the majority of clinics are high volume and, you know, you're, you're treating a lot of, a lot of patients at once. And I would say a, a minority of people actually enjoy that type of model majority, like, you know, be, building a little bit more of a personal connection and mm-hmm. really, you know, that, that kind of human side of physical therapy. But that being said, there are some that, that like that, that, um, fast paced, um, you know, type, type clinic. So. 
Yeah, I think it's it's just it's really challenging. But I think if you kind of take an inventory and and really um, try to unpack what it is that that you enjoy and and what makes you come alive, um, and then that can kind of help you make some decisions and choose choose better opportunities. I mean, you could take it one step deeper and you think about um, <clears throat> obviously this model that we're shifting towards that one-on-one and cash-based like Brian talked about, but obviously there is still a large quantity of um, clinics that have two to three week waiting periods, right? Just to try to get yeah. in. And then you have these patients that are trying to navigate and saying like, all right, well, uh, my surgeon wants me to go see, or my orthopedist wants me to go see X, Y, and Z clinic, but like, I kind of got to get in PT's PT. It's kind of like taking your uh, car to any sort of <laughs> dealership, right? Like, yeah, they'll be able to work on it and I'll, I'll get the same kind of results. But mm-hmm. I think if we, if we look at the health literacy, I'm trying to get real deep for a second, but like the literacy of our society in terms of health knowledge, their maintenance and care of their own physical well-being, and just our healthcare model where, I mean, they've talked about this concept of like, you see your dentist twice a year. So why shouldn't you be able to see a physical therapist twice a year just for like a body tune up, right? If we as a healthcare society had the opportunity to say, listen, like, I really think if you start mobilizing X, Y, and Z to do like these four basic, we joke about all the time. Like if you could give six exercises to everybody, how many problems could we like solve? Like, you know, so have, <laughs> right? <laughs> you improve your ankle dorsiflexion, right? So you'll yeah. be able to negotiate stairs better, they'll be able to squat better. Um, do some glute med strengthening because why not? It's like 90% of like oh, well, lower extremity pathologies sort of stem from that. You uh, strengthen your rotator cuff, strengthen your scap stabilizers, right? So you do thoracic extension mobility, stuff like that. Do some press ups, one down, just like press it out. And then like, you just give that as like baseline information. How many pathologies could we potentially catch at the door um, with some real basic education, right? And so that would take away the burnout component because we wouldn't need to be treating so many patients because the society as a whole would have a better understanding of how mm-hmm. to manage their cells. So I think I, I think, want, oh, go on, Tom. I think my number one exercise would be uh, like a hip hinge or a deadlift. Yeah. Because when I say those words, people's eyes gloss over and they have no idea what I'm talking about. And then I try, I try and show them and then they don't get it. And then I tell them, all right, just like push your hips back. They still don't get it. So then I'm getting like a foam roller behind them, like hit the foam roller through hips. I'm putting a PVC pipe on their back. I keep back straight. Like we're trying to add weight cause it's too easy and it's a real struggle. And I'm just like, oh my God. And I had this guy the other day. This was awesome. He like couldn't figure it out. And I'm like, bro, this is not that hard. Like this is basic moving pattern stuff. He should have learned this in like third grade. And I was like, <laughs> and he, he kept bringing up, uh, they played pickleball, <clears throat> excuse me. And I was like, all right, show me like the stance you get in for pickleball. And he was like, boom, right in the hip hip position. <laughs> Mike, there you go, Tom, like learn to be a better PT, but also, uh, <laughs> So I learned a lot that day. It's like, okay, just talk to them the way they understand it. But that'd be my number one exercise. And I like that. I think that I think as PTs, we're obviously on the reactionary side of things. Like you get hurt, you have a surgery, you go to CPT. That's the model that's present right now. And I think so many of us are huge advocates for the proactive side where, okay, if we did these kind of basic movement patterns, we did these exercises, we saw people more on a more frequent basis 
we can prevent some of this chronic issue stuff, some of these traumatic injuries. And I think the whole system and society would improve, but then our fulfillment would be better as well because we're not always on the reactionary side of, of exercise and rehab and training. Tom, I've treated quite a few pickleballers in, in my time here in Rochester. It's really big in, in Rochester. I think it's getting big everywhere, but yeah, do you guys play? I don't play. No, no. I oh, we got to get you going. How are you, Tim? Uh, probably back in high school, we had a pickleball uh, pickleball unit. It's it's a pretty good game. All right, I mean, it wasn't cool back then. Now it's cool. That's <laughs> it's like super cool now. Everyone's yeah, doing there's it. courts everywhere. Yeah, everyone's doing it. So that, that's a great reason <laughs> to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think on one end, on on one side, you have kind of what you guys are speaking to, like the preventative. Like if everybody could just work on these, you know, four or five or six things once per day, man, we would like not ha- be having to see as many patients. And on the other side of that spectrum, you have like the opportunity and specificity. And I'm really intrigued by this, like PTs getting out into the wild of like going and meeting a skier, like at the slopes and like watching them move and understanding why they're having certain problems or going to, you know, to a basketball practice before that player has practice and like meeting with that player one-on-one and then, you know, doing some kind of, you know, warm up or, or preventative um, therapeutic exercise and then like mm-hmm. watching them play and saying just like getting out there into the community, I think is a, a huge opportunity for us. We're always, we're conditioned to think that, you know, we can only um, provide service and value when somebody comes to us in like a clinic setting. I think there's a lot of opportunity with us actually going out to see patients and something like that might be in an office that might be in a, a sports setting that might be, um, in a, in a warehouse. You know, I think there's just a lot of opportunity there too, that, um, we're seeing kind of unfold currently. I think we're just kind of discovering this. You guys are, um, you're problem solvers. Like you're, you're solving all the world's problems here. So another problem that I have is when someone comes to therapy, like obviously the goal is to get them better, but there are different ways you can go about that. You can give them what they want. You can give them what you think is best. You can make them feel good. You can give them the hard things that they're nearly not good at. There's like a lot of different ways to approach that. And I think that varies a lot between from clinician to clinician and provider to provider. What are your thoughts on what is like the main goal of when someone comes into therapy and do, do patients have that, do they see it the same way as a provider does? I think obviously that's, uh, it uh, depends on the patient, right? And I think that's yeah. like uh, the buzzword of our profession, it depends. Um, but I think um, when I first started out in clinical practice, uh, a lot of my mindset was planned, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is my plan for today's session. I wanna do this and this and this and this. And then as time went on, um, understanding that that uh, predictability, if you would, to my thinking process was partly what was taking away the fun from the profession, right? Like I already problem solved to today going into today. Um, mm-hmm. And granted, there's like speed bumps along the way. But um, so I, I do not necessarily prep personally going in to see my patients because my philosophy is um, what's the biggest issue that you have right now? And that's a question that I ask every patient that walks in the door. Mm, Um, Yeah. If you take your, if you take your car to a mechanic and you say it's making a really big squeaking sound in the back and they change your oil and they 
fix your headlights and then they send you on your way and you're like, well, it's still kind of making that squeaking sound. You like didn't even take a, take a look at that. You didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't get what you paid for. And so my, my treatment approach um, has greatly shifted to, okay, how are the exercises I gave you last time? Good. Do you have any new complaints or anything that's going on that I should be aware of? No, everything's about the same. Okay. I need you to progress X, Y, and Z and make the small modification. Good, good, good. Sets, reps, periodization models, stuff like that. Okay. What's your biggest problem that you're having right now? I can't figure out how to get down on the floor and get back up. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Let's work on that for the next 25 minutes. And so even if I'm only giving them one new concept, that's their biggest issue for the day. Mm -hmm. And so I see my, my, my philosophy, my approach is one, it's less work on my end because you're telling me what you need to work on. And at the same time, I'm giving you what you need because you've told me what you want. I try to have it be a collaborative model versus a patriarchal model where I'm saying, we're going to work on X, Y, and Z today. That's Mm -hmm. not patient-centered care per per se, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the patient's able to tell me what their biggest priority, then I'm I'm giving them what they need. That's That's my typical approach. Yeah, I think there's two layers to it. I think the first layer is obviously, um, I think it's outcome driven. So the patient wants uh, a certain outcome to be achieved, whether that's um, decreasing their pain, helping them improve uh, their ability to do X, Y, or Z, or or what have you. Um, I think that's the first layer and probably um, what they're focused most on. And I think the second part is that they want somebody who is generally going to kind of be there with them and for them along this path that they're they're going on. I think a lot of healthcare now is unfortunately time spent with patient is uh, getting shorter and shorter. Um, and I think patients are left with a lot more questions than they're given answers. So I think at one end, you, you obviously, you know, they care about the outcome and whether or not you're going to do the thing that you said you're going to do. Um, but also they want you to, to be there for them. Um, and I think part of that is educating them, as Tim said, and kind of um, helping them understand their problem and why, you know, ultimately the why behind they're working on the thing that they're, they're working on. If I give my, you know, taxes to an accountant and he just, you know, gives me back this report. Yeah, that's great. Like the outcome is there, but part of me kind of wants to know what the heck he did and why mm. I'm getting this much or I'm getting this much. Right. Like, and that goes for any, you know, any, um, job will say that you're, you're paying somebody for. I try to ask my patients lately, okay, explain to me, like you're talking to your spouse or your brother or your friend, like what's going on with your hip or your knee or shoulder. And some of them like blank face. They're like, I have no idea. It's like, ah, I did not do a good job today of explaining to you in simple terms of what we're trying to work on. Um, or they'll, I'll be like, do you have any questions? And like, I'll, I'll go like 10 minutes of like, okay, like this is what we're going to work on. Da, 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 all this fancy anatomy. And then they'll like point to the front of their thigh and they'll be like, is this your quad? It's like, oh my gosh, like we skipped some steps here. <laughs> I need to like meet you where you're at and give you that value. Um, and not just assume kind of said like collaborative approach. Like, where is your knowledge at of your body and how can I increase that? Because you know, the more the patient knows and understands what's going on and where we're trying to go, it's a lot easier to create that buy-in instead of here are your exercises, come back. We all know that doesn't work, right? Here are your three right. things, come back in a week. Like there has to be a different layer to it. Um, otherwise, we'd have much better outcomes in therapy. 
Yeah, I think definitely I'm guilty of it. I think we're all guilty of it. The information yeah. dump, right? The, mm-hmm. the where you just like dump all this stuff, and you can even walk away from that saying, "Man, I crushed it." But like you, Tom, you kind of like how you said that you kind of check yourself um, and see, you know, whether the patient was actually grasping what you were telling them. And sometimes it's like, you know, something way out of left field that like you didn't even talk about, and you're like, "Where did you get that from?" And then, you know, and you have to like rewind yeah. and be like, "All right, let, let's start. Let's go. Let's go back a little bit." Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know, totally guilty of it. And I think as we grow as providers, you 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 know, take a different approach and you ask more questions and, and listen more rather than, you know, un- unloading a whole bunch of uh, anatomy and phys talk. Well, I think also that <clears throat> that concept of the um, overexcited, anxious new graduate, right? Or the overexcited, anxious, I just got done with my continuing education course, I'm going to crush the world <laughs> kind of concept, right? Monday yes. morning, I'm going to just uh, get a slow pitch softball, knock it out of the park. But yep. I think like early on, um, I remember... Uh, Brian and I went through orthopedic residency together at Cayuga Medical Center and uh, remember taking a pain neuroscience course um, with Mike Costello, who's uh, one of our mentors and um, one of the individuals that we interviewed for the book. Um, and uh, that was our first exposure to pain neuroscience. Like we didn't get that stuff in PT school. And so that whole concept of like, man, like you can just use metaphors and like explain pain and then they're going to like get it and then their pain's going to like be better they're going to be able to do more from a functionality standpoint and so this idea that you're just talking about like fire alarms and smoke alarms and all this other stuff and you're just banking on the fact that it's like going to like be processed by them and then you do this reflection a couple of years later like post post fellowship for me and looking back on those patients and it's like did you really did you even ask permission to provide education and see if they wanted to receive that education. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things from mm-hmm. a from a like um, from a practitioner standpoint. You have thirty minutes of time, right? And so, like, or sixty minutes, or however long your treatment session is. For some of those individuals, they're paying a thirty, forty, fifty dollar copay for that time. Now, us as practitioners, we perceive that time that I am providing education is valuable, right? Like, I wouldn't be saying these these concepts if I didn't perceive that mm-hmm. this was worth your your treatment session at the same time i think we do a poor job of asking and you you talked about a good like good do you have any questions what what did you walk away with so i think we do a good job of what did you take away from my communication but i think we do a poor job of asking would you be open to hearing more or would you be interested in mm-hmm. learning more about x y and z i always mm-hmm. ask my patients um would you be interested in, in seeing your MRI? Would you be interested in seeing your x-ray? And a lot of times they haven't been shown it. So yeah, sure. So then I will show them the MRI and x-ray. And then I will say, so what did you walk away with after speaking to the, to the surgeon or to talking to your primary care physician? Why well, I, I heard X, Y, and Z about my disc or the degenerative X, Y, and Z disease. And then I, I'll ask them, would you be interested in hearing some of my thoughts about what those findings might actually indicate. And usually, since you're being polite and since you're trying to engage in a collaborative conversation with that patient, usually the answer is yes. And I think that reception of information, you have a lot higher success rate than if you're going to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dump X, Y, and Z research on you in regards to um, 
32% of individuals above the age of 40 already have some level of degenerative disc disease at L4, L5, L5S1. And so your disc, disc herniation, that's not a concern to me, right? Like people without symptoms have those. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that's a, a takeaway that I have tried to implement over the last couple of years. Nobody really oh, likes yeah. unsolicited advice, right? Oh, yeah. So, I say yeah. that all the time. And Nobody I know likes- people know that, but it's so true. Yeah. We, I mean, put ourselves in the patient's shoes. If, if somebody just started, like, you know, telling you a bunch of stuff that you didn't even ask about, you'd be like, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to pick up bits and pieces of this, but most of this is going in one ear and out the other, right? Yeah. Nobody likes unsolic- unsolicited advice. So asking permission or, you know, starting with a question of, has anybody really talked to you about um, X or Y? And oftentimes the answer is no. And then it's like, well, do you mind mm-hmm. if I kind of give you my perspective or talk to you a little bit about this? And 99% of the time it's yes. So, right. and, and then they're locked in, right? And then they're like, okay, well, I answered yes. So therefore, <laughs> I, like, I'm, I need to listen now because I told this person that I, mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to them. And, you know, I think it's just, it's like you said earlier, Tom, it's a lot better way um, to get buy-in um, ultimately and, and, you know, improve compliance and just get the patient on your side. My metaphor for this would be if I went to a museum and I asked the security person, where's the bathroom? And they start just giving me like a history of the museum. Like, <laughs> I don't care. I just want to go to the bathroom. Like, show me the fastest way. And um, so, so it's a little different there. Yeah, but no, totally. The uh, Brian, you brought up earlier the time aspect. And I had a patient today. She's like, yeah, I went to the doc. I was like, how is it? And he's he's for sure nationally known and might be world known. He's a foot and ankle surgeon. and She's like, well, the 90 seconds was good. And I was like, I understand. Like, there's some frustration there. But, like, it's A, good he's not spending a lot of time with you. Because, I mean, things are going well. And you get more of that time from me and the rehab side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but B, like, we're paying for the expertise. So we're not paying for the time. And I think some people, and, and, and I don't know the healthcare models in other countries. But it seems like in the U.S., you can get in relatively fairly quickly it might be expensive, but you also don't get a lot of time with the provider. So I don't know if it's a better option to, hey, you got to wait six or eight weeks to see the doctor, but you get 20 minutes with them instead of five, six, eight minutes, whatever it might be. I don't know what the solution on that end is, but it seems like in PT, th- the squeeze is really sh- is really tough because some people need, uh, there's so much you can work on, right? The education piece we just talked about, the exercise piece the relating to their sport or to their activities, kind of like you talked about with the skiing or basketball. And it's a lot for us as providers to know where do I spend my time and how do I get that buy-in and each patient. And the hard part is every patient's different, right? Some people really want to learn the exact anatomy of the knee and what exactly is hurt and how is it going to get better and healing timelines. And other people are like, just tell me what to do and let's talk about the football game over the weekend. And I'm, I don't, I'm not like they, they don't care as much. They might care a little bit, but not as much about the educational piece. Yeah. What you said about, you know, paying for the experience and not the time I, I struggle with that, but I think when it really comes down to it, it is kind of true. Like, I, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about accountants today, but an accountant, you know, you paying for a job at that, um, you know, costs an hourly rate. Uh, you're not paying them for the hour. You're paying them for the the 20 or 30 years that they've done that job. And now they have yeah. it down to a science and can do it quickly and effectively for you. And I don't know if it's that much different for surgeons or, or physicians. You know, I think 
like you said, the squeeze is real. They're squeezed, you know, their, their time and their, um, you know, the paperwork and other documentation things that they, they deal with insurance things. Um, they I'm sure want to spend more time with the patient, but they just can't either. Um, but you know, you are paying that physician and surgeon, um, for their, their value proposition essentially, Mm -hmm. which is their value is knowing who to do surgery on, who not to do surgery on and outlining the course of care for that patient. Um, our value proposition on the clinician side is, well, now we get this, this, the surgeon deemed that, you know, you don't need surgery, which is great. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. hopefully if they're a good surgeon, they're, they're sending them to us and not doing surgery on everyone. Right. Um, but they're sending them to us and our value proposition on our end is saying, well, now I have 45 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 minutes for, with you on your first visit to sit down and talk to you about what actually is going on and you know, everything that I'll, we've talked about over the last 30 minutes. That's where I get to implement it. And that's where I get to show you my value. Um, and I, you know, the more that we see a lot of these surgeries um, and other maybe treatment uh, interventions um, not being much better than sham surgeries or sham treatment interventions that mm-hmm. this is that just shows that demonstrates our, our value even more that what we're delivering and what we're able to do for the patient is even more powerful because that other stuff doesn't really work that much better than, than anything else, you know? So I think, uh, as I, there was speaking of uh, foot and ankle, uh, surgeons, um, there's a specialist that was giving a talk at, um, you know, where I work at the university of Rochester a couple of years ago now. And, he was going through some different surgeries that he does for foot and ankle dysfunctions. And uh, by the end of it, he was like, you know, the way the research is going, we're not going to be doing surgery on everyone. You guys are just going to be doing rehab on everyone. And that was really empowering for the mm-hmm. rehab, for the rehab therapist to hear because it was like, wow, this guy, he gets it. You know, he sees it. And I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, unless it's a serious, you know, dysfunction or injury or issue, what have you, we're going to be taking care of the majority of these people. I hope the common or the non-medical person understands the value of rehab as much where it's like, you know what, I'm going to give PT a try. I'm going to give it some time. I'll give it a couple months, not just, oh, like three days, not better. Let's, let's do surgery. I think that educational piece hopefully increases mm-hmm. um, throughout society. But enough about clinical care. could talk about this all day. Um, but you guys wrote a book, and I am so impressed because I really value reading. I value people take the time to condense all their thoughts, to gather information and to put something out there. And in this day and age, it's so hard to put um, information out there and put your name on it because it's so scrutinized by people on the internet and social media and things like that. But I think it's super beneficial to go through that process and to be part of something and, and something bigger than yourself that could be last year for decades or hundreds of years. Um, so you guys can kind of jump in, but tell me about the process of writing this book, how it started, how it went and what you learned from it. Yeah. So the, the book uh, is called movers and mentors and it started, um, back when Tim and I were going through, uh, orthopedic residency together at KU medical center. Um, and we were taking in, consuming a lot of information, um, reading a lot of research, um, and we started seeing a lot of uh, kind of reoccurring names come up in our in the content that we were consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Shirley Sarmans, the Stu McGills, the John Childs, um, the Josh Clelands. You know, um, we started uh, um, kind of thinking there was something to that. And you know, these are these must be um, highly influential researchers or business leaders or what have you within the, the PT re- and rehab space. Um, we were also reading a book called, uh, tools of Titans, 
uh, by Timothy Ferris at the time. And we really mm-hmm. liked the style of that book. And we were, we were gleaning a lot from it. Uh, and so one day, you know, Tim and I were having a conversation and we said, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a book like this, uh, you know, just specific to the rehab space uh, and, and physical therapy and movement science. So we kicked around that for, for a couple of years. Um, and then ultimately in 2018, we, we committed to it, decided we were going to put that book together that we were looking for. Uh, and we came up with a list of names, came up with a list of questions and then started sending out emails. And Tim and I were both in, in educational roles at the time. I had just stepped into a um, director of our orthopedic residency at the University of Rochester and Tim had started teaching. So we were both, you know, just kind of involved in mentorship and education and it felt like it was the right time. That's so cool. Um, in the process of writing the book, did you learn more about your own philosophies of treating on the clinical side when you were interviewing all these guests? Like, oh, how was that transformation for you as you're going throughout the book? I think probably less so from a clinical standpoint. I think one okay. of the one of the fun aspects of the book. So we, um, like Brian said, we sort of cold called, emailed um, over probably over 120, 150 people, mm-hmm. um, and got responses back from over 75. Um, and so during that interview process, one of the things that we wanted to try to avoid in this volume of movers and mentors was what's your favorite back exercise? Because I think if you go online, mm-hmm. um, you go to Instagram and, and you're going to have a thousand talking heads that are going to say that these are the best stabilization exercises for individuals with low back pain. Or if you do a quick search on Shirley Sarman, low back exercise progressions, you're going to be able to find research and documentation supporting that. But when I want to think about what was Brian Mulligan's biggest failure, that's something that's not going to be broadcast, right? And so some of the questions that we asked were in hopes of being able to disseminate personal and professional advice to young graduates and physical therapists sort of throughout the world, right? And so we didn't necessarily want to incorporate the clinical component to it because that's that's information that you can get in a textbook mm-hmm. and i think when we're thinking about the profession we talked a little bit about burnout we talked a little bit about job satisfaction um that professional guidance and mentorship is something that i think our profession needs more of um mm-hmm. and so what did i take away from it during these conversations i was just blown away that these clinicians failed their board exams or that they um, didn't pass the last clinical rotation or that I'm reading the same books that you're reading. Right. And so it's one of those things that the humanization of these individuals who we see their names on research and literature and books um, or putting together courses and podcasts at the end of the day, there's still people that have same trials and tribulations that we have. Mm-hmm. The same frustrations in the clinic, the same life problems, the same life questions. Um, and just to be able to sort of put that together as a encyclopedia, if you would, um, that was sort of my biggest takeaway or sort of coolest moment. You brought up the F word uh, failure there, and it's kind of the new trend and people talk about their failures. But I really like to talk about like, what you learn and what you change in the process of writing this book, putting together, did you guys have any moments of doubt or setbacks or, or failure for that matter? And how'd you respond to those? 
Yeah, every day. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I mean, I think it's one, one, of the, one of those things that, I mean, you look at the book and uh, one of the common themes is that everybody fails, right? So mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that learning of the failure and Brian can speak to some of our other issues as well, but like our learning process um, throughout this whole situation, we, we learned so much about the ins and outs of putting together a, a literary work, right? In terms of, our, our interviewing um, of our guests improved, the questions that we asked improved, um, our uh, organizational skills got significantly better. I, one, of the, one of the things I appreciate is that Brian and I are very similar people and very different people at the same time. Brian is very organized and God bless him for being able to do like uh, the organizational aspect of the whole process. And I'm more of like, let's just like saddle up and go. Let's just do this. <laughs> and, so, and so there are times when looking back and you're like, man, if we just sort of slowed down a little bit, we probably would have, it's like the measure twice, cut once philosophy. Yeah. We, uh, we measured once and cut like six times a few times. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and so, um, so definitely, uh, definitely some learning experiences, but that's, that's the thing you talked about. Like everybody fails, but it's, what do you do with that failure? Right. You can either mm-hmm. take that as a, as a lump and just sort of leave it, or you can uh, get us an opportunity to grow. And so we definitely, definitely take growth route. Yeah. What's that? What's that quote? Is it an Abe Lincoln quote? If I have to chop down a tree, that's going to take 30 minutes. I'm going to spend 29 minutes sharpening my axe mm-hmm. or something like that. We did not spend 29, 29 minutes sharpening our axe. Where's that rusty saw in the back? Yeah. <laughs> Let's try to cut that sucker down. Um, no, yeah, definitely. We hit, we hit some roadblocks, you know, Tim and I, from a motivation standpoint, I mean, we were both working a lot, um, you know, middle of COVID. Uh, well, that's assuming that we're at the tail end of it. Uh, but that's uh, <laughs> uh, special. Thank you, man. Yeah, you are yeah, optimistic. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Half full. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, definitely we had some roadblocks and, and times when we were like oh, questioning how, how much work we had left to go on it and do we really want to finish it. And then there were times where we wouldn't get responses and weren't hearing back from people. And that's always, you know, kind of a, um, a punch in the gut sometimes, but ultimately once we got enough, uh, kind of traction and people were responding to us, we knew that we couldn't let our guests down when they dedicated time to speaking with us and Mm -hmm. responding to us. And, you know, as that list grows to 50, 60, 70 people, you're like, "Eh, if we didn't finish this, we're going to be letting down a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. and we didn't want to, one, we wanted to finish it for a number of reasons, but also, you know, we didn't want to, um, didn't want to come off like that and, and waste people's time. Ultimately, like they put in, um, they put in a lot of, of time, and we were very, very grateful for that. So uh, we definitely hit some failures, but ultimately, you know, that's what that's how you grow. And if Tim and I do a second volume of this book, you know, we've picked up on some efficiencies and ways that we can be more um, uh, effective with our time. And so hopefully, that 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 will be uh, that's value in itself. Absolutely. Well, it should be when you do the second volume, not if we got to get rid of that <laughs> if word in there. You got to be got to be a win. But no, I've 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 listened to a lot of podcasts or authors talk about the process of writing the book. And usually at the end, they're like, I don't want to do it again. Like it's so intensive. And I think it's it. You don't know that unless you've been through. I've not been through that process, but I've done enough smaller projects like podcasts, blogs, articles, those kind of things. It's like, wow this like one page article took me like a couple weeks just to put together. 
And I can't imagine like the process, like this huge volume of interviews and like the order and like even the small things, like what colors are we going to use? Things like that. That'll keep you up at <laughs> night, you know? So seems like you guys. And, and then the other thing is, um, and I wish we had more of this in therapy is you guys collaborated on this. And so much of therapy is it, you collaborate with your patients. Like we talked about, but you don't always get a lot of opportunity to collaborate uh, clinically with another provider because they're treating their own patients. Sure, you might share questions, articles, things like that, but to uh, compared to other fields, there's such little um, peer-to-peer collaboration, but it seems like you guys found a way to do that on this massive project, and it seems like some strengths here, some weaknesses there, and you guys found a way to mesh those together and make it work. Yeah, and no, I think that's one of those things that... Um one of the blessings of the individuals or the type of individuals that pursue our profession or healthcare in general, mm-hmm. um, we have a passion to help other people. And so this project was relatively well received by all the individuals that we were able to get responses from. Nice. And so that idea that, hi, we're working on a project. I know this is going to be an investment of your time. But would you be interested in potentially helping us out? We got an overwhelmingly positive response. And Mm -hmm. I think what's nice is the opportunity that their time and investment is the ripple effect to affect other individuals as well. Like you talk about, for instance, just as an example. um, So Stanley Paris, um, founder of uh, uh, St. Augustine's uh, University down in Florida, right? So uh, one of the big manual therapy fathers, grandfathers of uh, the profession, he talks about how one of the downfalls of our profession is the lack of referral within physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is physician writes a referral um, for someone with um, low back pain and goes to Joe Smo Clinic. And then they say, oh, yeah, we'll treat that. When they know that the world-renowned treating of, treater of low back pain is right down the street. Mm-hmm. Whereas from an ethical standpoint, we should say, no, I appreciate the referral source. But like, if you really want to have the best treatment care, you should go see that clinic. Um, or, oh, yeah, we're going to have someone, we have someone with uh, TMJ pain. Yeah, we could treat that. Does anybody here treat TMJ? No. Right. Like that's not anybody's specialty. And so um, so the idea of that collaboration model was voiced by Stanley Paris in his chapter. But uh, I think the collaboration amongst um, all the individuals in our book, we had people that were academics. We have researchers. We have clinicians. We have uh, social media media influencers. We have um, people that specialize in pelvic health, sports, orthopedics, cancer. Right. Um, We have a variety of different voices. And so I think one of the nice aspects of the book is that depending on your background or where you want to go within the profession, you're going to find someone that speaks to you or a response that at least strikes a chord or something that you can walk away with. And then you can sort of cherry pick the mentorship that you're looking for by going through and flipping through the pages. 100%. I think any uh, person who picks up the book is going to understand, hey, this is the best people in this field. This is how they think. These are these experiences. These are their philosophies. This is how they respond to adversity. And I think that transfers to any field. It doesn't have to be 
You don't have to just be a physical therapist to benefit from something like this. You can learn from other industries. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped for you guys. I love seeing people take their time and passion and put it into a productive product like a book. Um, so yeah, super happy for you guys. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. I'll have uh, the book link in the show notes and uh, we'll put on social media. Uh, and thanks again so much. And uh, I appreciate both of you. Yeah, Tom, this is awesome. Tom, thank you so much.